Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to our virtual Commonwealth Club. This is a, a, certainly a, a ambitious and a successful project by the Commonwealth Club to keep their wonderful programming going during this time where we're all sheltering in place. Um, tonight, uh, we're going to have a great conversation because we're lucky to have Joan Ryan, who many of you know as a very successful sports writer in the Bay Area and also has written several very important uh, books on sports and also on some other topics. So Joan and I are going to talk about her most recent book that you saw in the intro. It's called Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and the Soul of Team Chemistry. We're going to explore what Joan's research disclosed about team chemistry and how she thinks it applies uh, to many uh, parts of our society beyond just sports. So welcome, Joan. Thanks, Roy. It's great to be with you in any way that I can be. It's always a pleasure. Right. And we don't have to wear our masks. So we're, <laughs> we in, we're in good shape. Or or pants if we. Yeah, that's that. true. <laughs> I know. That's uh, why I use a virtual background. I, because it <laughs> covers up those little issues. Um, Joan, the, this book is uh, one I recommend to many people to read, uh, not just because uh, they may be sports fans and uh, love to read about a lot of the uh, situations you describe in this book, but I think it really goes much further in helping us understand a lot of our societal cultures about how we engage with each other, how we interact, how why we feel great around some people, why some people we just don't feel that comfortable with. And so that I think uh, our audience tonight should, uh, even though we're going to be mostly talking sports junkie kind of stuff, really recognize that this uh, concept you're working on extrapolates into many fields of organizational psychology. So what I'd like to do to give people a feeling for the book is actually ask you to start where the book starts with the story that you tell mm. about your parents and your father particularly. Right. So while I was um, in the midst of this 10-year journey of trying to figure out what team chemistry is, um, my mother died unexpectedly. And she and my father had been married for about 55 years. And um when she died, my father, you know, he wasn't sick. He was close to 80 and he wasn't sick. And, you know, but he had the usual, you know, fumbling with the remote control or, you know, whatever, those kinds of things yeah, that right. I have now, I'm not even close right. to 80. But um, when she died soon after that, within months, he started to deteriorate mm. and he ate less, almost, you know, almost got to the point where he was eating nothing you know, and his shoulders were just like this, you know, wire hanger, you know, at the end of his neck yeah. and, and um, took him to doctors, doctor, 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 nobody could diagnose anything. And nine months after we buried my mother, my father died. And on the death certificate was failure to thrive. Wow. 
And I knew that term only in relation to, you know, turn of the century, um, what we call these sterile orphanages in Europe, where in order to keep disease from spreading through the whole orphanage, they told the caretakers and nurses not to touch the babies except to change them and feed them. So after that, you know, the, the result of that was that at some of these orphanages, 75% of the babies died, even though they were mm. getting cared for. And then 40 years later, a, uh, an American uh, doctor decided to figure out what was going on. So he looked back at all of that and he figured out, and it's been, um, it, the experiments have been replicated and replicated and replicated, is that babies who are not touched cooed over, spoken to, cuddled, their brains don't develop. Mm -hmm. So even the babies that survived had cognitive disabilities. So from that, when I read that, and I was looking at my father's death certificate and that nothing was, uh, was diagnosed, he just died, I ultimately found out that it's not uncommon mm. that you know, people that have been married for such a long time, their bodies regulate each other, their brains regulate each other. And when we say, you know, God, it was like losing a limb. Mm -hmm. It's even more than that. You can survive losing a limb. Sometimes we don't survive the death of a spouse. Yeah. And as I was researching this team chemistry, I thought, wow, I knew that had something to do with team chemistry because if human beings can so profoundly affect each other, you die without that other person's influence. Well, what happens even in everyday life on how we influence each other? And then what happens within a locker room and a clubhouse in yeah. which these players are together day in and day out? How are they influence each other's physiology, psychology, and emotion? Yeah, that's a wonderful explanation of the thread that that takes you into this, as you said, ten-year-long research project. Uh, and and uh, it, I recall in the book, you say that it was many, much of it was triggered by going to a reunion of the nineteen eighty-nine Giants. It, so, it so, was. Yeah, it was. Well. I moved from Florida. I, I was working at the Orlando Sentinel. My whole family was in Florida. And I moved out to San Francisco on my own, you know, at the age of 25. And I walk right in to the Giants clubhouse. I was a columnist, but I really covered the Giants a lot. I covered the A's. I covered 49ers, everything. But there was something about that late 80s Giants club that totally got me. You know, and I say in the book, you know, it's like like every romance I ever had, I fell first for the story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they yeah. had a great story and great characters. Uh -huh. And that it, in particular, that 89 team and, and people in the Bay Area who remember, you know, it's it's Kruko and Dravecki and and the caveman and and uh, Will Clark and Robbie Thompson, Kevin Mitchell. I mean, you just go on and on and on. Right. And, and they had these factions. They had what, you know, the media called the God squatters, the, you know, the mm -hmm. super Christian guys. They had the carousers and the drinkers who were out in the, you know, the, the hotel bar half the night. And then you had the Latin American players from, you know, five different countries and the Southern whites and the and um, African-American players and 
college graduates and, and functional illiterates, you know, and you just think like, how is this ever going to work? And they, you know, would fight and, and argue and get on each other. But I could see in that clubhouse and I was so jealous of them because I missed my pack in Florida, my family of six brothers and sisters and all that, that they loved each other. So now 20 years ahead, and as most people know, right, they won the pennant that year with this, you know, they had a lot of talent, but they also just had a lot of divisions um, or, or potential divisions. And, you know, of course, it was the Earthquake World Series and they got swept by the A's. We won't go there. No, right? that's okay. Um, <laughs> and um, so now 20 years later, I'm in uh, 2009, I'm now a media consultant for the Giants. I had just left the Chronicle and I'm walking through that tent and these guys have all come back and almost every one of them showed up. It was amazing from all over the country. And, you know, they got some pot bellies and, you know, kind of walk a little right. bit. And as I'm walking through, uh, again, I could hear it in their voices and see it in their eyes that they still loved each other. And yeah. they kept saying those two words, team chemistry. And that's what got me on the path to thinking, gosh, I've never really thought about, well, what is team chemistry? How does it work? And more importantly, how does it affect performance, right? Because why mm -hmm. even talk about it? if it doesn't affect performance. Right, right. So if it's it, a rabbit's foot, we don't need to discuss it, right? Right, yeah. It's like, you know there's something there. Yeah. And of course, we were right in the midst of Moneyball and all the analytics, and mm -hmm. team chemistry was kind of this old-fashioned, you know, sort of myth, myth that, you know, baseball has held on to for all these years, and analytics was going to sweep that away. And I really wasn't sure when I set out into this, well, right. does it really exist? Mm -hmm. And of well, course, you know, it does. It does. Well, when I, before I read your book, and if you had asked me what team chemistry was, I'd probably say something like, well, you know, it's a bunch of people on a sports team or in a group for whatever with a common mission who somehow get along well. And it seems like the some of the part of uh, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, a very non-scientific, subjective, anecdotal observation. Your book uh, tells us it actually is chemistry in a literal <laughs> sense, right? So it, take, it, take us down your research path on that. Well, um, it was quite long and, and, and quite complex because, of course, I was in way over my head on the science and I needed to understand it so that I could then explain it, right? Yeah. So, you know, going back to my uh, my father's death um, and the orphan babies, so you look at the physiology of it, like what is it that we are getting from each other? And like touch is a, is a really big one. Um, well, before I get to touch, let's go back to evolution. Yeah. So when we understand how our brains are wired and why they're wired that way. You know, one thing that the modern human, and the modern human is, you know, many, many, many hundreds of years old, is that we are wired to connect, right? We are what, you know, one neuroscientist calls, we're open loop creatures, mm -hmm. meaning we don't have everything we need to survive in our, we're not born with everything we need to survive. 
And, 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 you know, it's more than just that you can't walk around and can't think and can't drive a car, <laughs> you know, like, right, right. you know, your brain just isn't, isn't wired as, as we referenced earlier. So because we're open loop creatures, we are profoundly influenced by each other. And, um, and so Jake Peavy, the great yeah. Cy Young pitcher who played for the A's, he captures that in a sports reference, but it's, it's true for all of us mm-hmm. that when I asked Jake Peavy, who was just given a hundred percent every moment he's on the mound and anybody who's seen him pitch knows this, right. he's just ferocious. I said, well, Jake, you know, if team chemistry elevates performance, why does it matter for you? Cause you can't, you know, you literally can't give more than a hundred percent. And he said, my teammates bring out a fight in me I can't willingly summon for myself. And that was it. When he said that, I said, you know what? That's what it is. And now it's figuring all of the rest of it out um, of why, what are his teammates doing? Mm -hmm. How is he responding to them physiologically? And there's there's a lot of different reasons in different situations. But um, tell us about oxytocin, because you do quite a yeah. bit of work on that. Yeah. Oxytocin is is sometimes called the love hormone or the trust hormone. So it's, um, you know, from a very small part of your brain that when, you know, meaningful touch, you know, so babies, mm-hmm. you know, so a mother touches a baby um, and, and in childbirth, also oxytocin. Um, is released into the blood system because it fosters bonding. It makes you feel bonded to that person that you're in connection with there. So, you know, let's say um, a player, you know, swings his arm around another player and a young player and says, you know, hey, Matt, you're the guy we need right now. We're glad you're here. And, you know, let's, let's go get him. Right. Now, his brain has been flooded with oxytocin. It's through his, it, it's, it relaxes mm. you. It makes you feel connected to that person. Um, it, you know, it, it gives you a sense of well-being. But what's really interesting and in the biology of this is let's say, you know, Jack is across the clubhouse and he's watching Matt and maybe it's Buster Posey, right? Putting uh-huh. his arm around him and he's got that, you know, nice meaningful touch and his tone of voice and, and all of those things. And Jack is across, he's watching it. Now we have these neurons in our brain that have been now called mirror neurons. Mm-hmm. So we watch what somebody else is going through. And if it's meaningful to us, so Jack is looking across and he's seeing that's happening. His brain responds as if it's happening in that brain too. Oh. So his neurons are firing and the parts of his brain that are feeling quote feeling that touch is like it's actually happening to him so now jack just watching this is feeling bonded Mm -hmm. as well because of the oxytocin that's being released in in his body Mm -hmm. so oxytocin is a i think is you know a huge part of team chemistry that of course you can't see it you can't measure it but we know it's that that is what's going on yeah. in, in them and bonding them in a way that just doesn't happen, you know, because you have a drink together. And I think I thought it was interesting what you said about 
we are not complete people except by reference to the people we're with. So that um, a player may be with one um, player and just feel like they're inadequate and not really shouldn't be even on the team. Then you get with somebody else who has the ability to, as you say, stimulate the oxytocin in them, and then they feel like they're super. Right. And then there's, there's other things too, you know, beyond oxytocin. So when we say we're open loop creatures, yeah, it, that means a lot of different things. And one of the things it means is that, and this is what one neuroscientist psychiatrist um, explained to me, is that relationship is everything for human beings. So, you know, the study of team chemistry is really the study of human nature. Mm -hmm. So who we are with, so as we're talking, Roy, just talking to you changes me some ways, right? Because of your tone of voice, because of the relationship we have together, the trust we've built up, you know, are you interested? Do you look annoyed? You know, all of those things. I am not exactly this same Joan when I'm talking to anybody else, mm -hmm. I'm exactly this, Joan, only when I'm talking to you, because there is a unique um, give and take, a, you know, our brain is taking in everything in our environment, like every, and it's hard, you know, a little bit in Zoom, but every, <laughs> you know, change in yeah. your, you know, facial right. muscles, everything, uh -huh. our brains take it all in, sends it out to the right departments, and then recalibrates how we're then sending signals back to you. So like, if you think about it, yeah. you know, there are certain friends that you're just funny with mm -hmm. and you're not as funny with other people or some friends that you just feel sharper and, and smarter yeah. with. And it's because they are completing some, you know, a loop in you. Uh, what I'm going to uh, do is um, reinforce a lot of what Joan said. She did an amazing amount of research, in, scientific research, in uh, sociology, neurology, um, and um, endocrinology to uh, understand uh, the chemical basis for these interactions um, that we're talking about. And of course, it, you tend to focus on them and observe them in a sports context because sports has this very simple metric for measuring performance. Uh, you know if you win and you know if you lose. Um, but it, it applies in many places. I, I know when I would uh, first, uh, let's say, join an, another organization and I'd try to get an assessment of the nature of the workforce and you would find in many cases that people who worked there saw their job as basically a closed system and that if they uh, were, if somebody else in the organization got something good, like got some funding for some new equipment or whatever, they felt that that was bad because it was taking it away from them. Um, and gradually, if you could work your workplace correctly, you would have people understand that, no, this workplace is an open system and that if you have a success, um, it's going to partly be because the other person that I got the new equipment for had a success. And that's the same kind of a, of a thought process that you want to take over to uh, thinking about sports teams, because if the left fielder it just looks at his job as playing left field. And as long as he catches the ball correctly and throws it to the correct base, 
uh, he's doing his job, that's not enough. The left fielder has to look at himself, not just as the responsible for covering left field, but for um, making the entire team win. So oh. there you are. Oh, sorry. We're back. Wow. That's good. Did you hold uh, down the fort? Um, I uh, started reading my favorite poems. <laughs> no, no, actually, <laughs> I, I was talking about why um, the concept of uh, – that you're talking about applies beyond the, the teams that's of course measuring teams winning and losing makes it a little easier to evaluate team chemistry but you see it in the workplace as well where if people feel as though they're part of a bigger um, mission and part of the company and that if the success of another person in their company is is uh, noticeable that it probably benefits them as well. And so they get that, uh, meta, I'll say a metaphorical touching of seeing success and it carries over and it makes organizations good. Mm-hmm. While, um, while we're at our break and I'm going to, we'll come back to this, Joan, what um, I want to remind everybody who's watching is that they can send us questions. I already have some Uh and I will be will be getting to them towards the end, but let's go back to where we were before we uh, experienced our audio problem, and that is the notion of um, team chemistry and whether it exists, as you said in your thing, um, in your lead-in. And so, what was the reaction when you would go around and talk to what we'll call baseball? professionals, you know, people who had been the game all their life, uh, on the question of whether there was such a thing as team chemistry? Well, I must say that most of the people I talk to who are part of parts of teams um, believe in team chemistry. I, I'm staying away from the word believe whenever yeah. I can, because it's almost like, well, do you believe in gravity? You know, it's, yeah, right. it's it, you know, it is. Yeah. Whether you acknowledge it or not is is something different, but it it just does exist. So there were a few, you know, like Jim Leland, the old Pirates um, mm-hmm. manager. You right. know, you go into his office, and you know, you know, being in the American League, uh, you know, he's he's chain smoking his his Marlboros, and and you go in there, mm-hmm. and he's as gruff as can be, and it's like ah, you know, chemistry is a is a subject I took in school; it doesn't exist. But then when you talk to him, he talks about the value of a, of a, of a group of veterans. Mm. And he said, you know, there is no greater tonic to a team than a good group of veterans. He didn't say wow. good group of veterans who were really good players. Yeah. He was saying just that um, the solidness, the sageness that they have to give to that clubhouse that it holds it together. And, you know, and so I asked him about that and I said, it sounds like, you know, you're saying that that matters, you know, and that what happens in the dugout and in the clubhouse matters, at least with that group. But he said, well, of yeah. course it does. Of course it matters. Yeah. You know, you know? <laughs> so you're like, OK, I got it, you know. Yeah. But overall, most people say, well, of course, of course it exists. Mm-hmm. So then the challenge was to sort of prove it scientifically. And then, you know, the really fun. I mean, I think the science is fun too, but the really fun part is to tell the stories from inside the clubhouses and the locker rooms. Right. Yeah. And, and these surprising, you know, 
you go in there, like at least I did, you know, you go in there with an idea of what is going on in that clubhouse only to find out, oh, that's not what was going on at all. Right, right. Yeah. Well, in, in, in that regard, you developed a, what I thought was a very interesting, we use the term subjective just to distinguish it from um, neuroscience, um, a list of archetype personalities that you would usually see in the clubhouse yeah. if it was a successful clubhouse. And it, I think it's worth going through that seven type list. It's, it's, a, it's a very interesting insight, I think. And we'd start with the warrior. With the warrior, exactly. So the warrior is this is sort of the, the guy, and I'm saying guy, even though it's, it's uh, you know, I, I write about men and women in the book, right. but I'm just going to say guy. Um, the warrior is the guy that gives the team swagger, you know, the guy that sort of is the, um, the model in a way for the best of them. Mm -hmm. So, and it could be somebody they don't like, like, you know, generally a lot of people didn't like Barry Bonds, but you know, he was the warrior and you think, well, if we have him, we're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Right. And another one is the sage. Right. And the sage is is like David Ross with the Cubs, grandpa. Uh-huh. So, I mean, the sage is really important because he's that safe guy you can go to, just mm-hmm. like grandpa. They've seen it all, done it all. You know, yeah. they're really even. You can come in and, and put your arm around. It's like, dude, it's going to be fine. You know how many mm-hmm. times that has happened to everybody in this clubhouse? And, yeah. and so they can let their hair down with the sage and learn what he needs to learn and, and, um, and feel better when they leave him. Mm-hmm. Who's uh, so David Ross, the example of that, who was an example on the giants team, Tim Hudson, Tim Hudson. That's and he was on one. the 2014 team and, yeah. um, and he had never reached the playoffs, right. much less won a world series. And so, you know, he was so beloved in that, I mean, he took in um, Madison Bumgarner mm. into his house in in the in San Francisco, and yeah. uh, you know, just he was such a great guy. Yeah. And so they wanted to win that World Series as much for him as for mm-hmm. anything. Yeah. And it was just lovely to watch um, that affection for each other, mm-hmm. that total commitment to each other. And, and Roy, you've seen that, you know, with the A's, you know, there's sure. such a commitment yeah. that it is like being on a battlefield, uh-huh. that bond that they so develop. The, the kid. Oh, the, yeah. The kid. The kid. I, I sort of described the kid, you know, the rookie coming in and, you know, they're just, you know, they're exuding energy like a, like a puppy, you know, shaking off water. You know, they're yeah. just like, there's energy everywhere around the kid and. And I joke, you know, like now how the clubhouses are, you know, with these kitchens and, and all these, you know, that the kid will go in and say, oh, my God, there's a cappuccino maker in the kitchen. You know, just so excited about it. Yeah. And so everybody else in the clubhouse, especially you've been around a few years, you know, you're like, oh, that's right. That mm-hmm. it reminds them of themselves and how, and when they love the game. So they get a taste of that again. You know, so yeah. the kid lifts them up in that way. Right, right. And hasn't gotten, uh, he eventually becomes the sage, but right now he's just the kid. Yeah. <laughs> and he ha- he's not jaded at all. You know, he no. just can't do enough. Yeah. So now the buddy, how about the buddy? 
the funny, I, I say, you know, it's it's nobody eats alone, uh-huh. right? Because there are those guys that maybe just don't have the social skills or they're a little timid or they're like an orphan in there. Like maybe they're the only one from Colombia mm-hmm. there or the only one from Japan or yeah. in today's, uh, today's uh, Major League Baseball, at least, the only African-American. Mm-hmm. And so they don't have their subgroup, you know, like in, in a clubhouse or a locker room, there's these subgroups, the young guys are together, the marriage yeah. guys, married guys, you know, the African-American. Yeah. And, um, you know, like in the Giants clubhouse, you know, now, you know, there's one African-American. So that buddy is the one that pulls him in. Hey, dude, we're going to the movies. Come on. You're coming with us. You know, we're not taking no for an answer. Mm-hmm. So that guy is the buddy. The enforcer. So the enforcer, and a lot of people mistake that, you know, it's not you're enforcing anything on the other team. Right. Like you're you're the one that's going to knock somebody down in the in the batter's box or, you know, in, or you're going to be Draymond Green because you're enforcing, yeah. you know, something uh-huh. with the other team. The enforcer is with your own team. Mm. And you're the one who doesn't mind being disliked by saying stuff people don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. And camaraderie can be a killer of a team because nobody wants to rock the boat. Everybody just wants to be happy and get along. And that is a performance killer. Mm -hmm. You need that enforcer to go in and say, dudes, yeah, you're all proud of yourselves. You think you're doing great. You know, this thing is going to catch up with us. And I noticed you didn't run out that, you know, and Mm -hmm. we don't do, we don't do it like that here. Yeah, that's important, that running it's out the ground ball to first base. Yeah. Is, that's a big, big deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then we get the jester. To me, the jester, a really good, wise jester, is the most powerful player in any clubhouse. Hmm. Because the jester, and I think of Mike Kruko and, and yeah. uh, you know, the Bob Brenleys and, and those guys – that they can say anything to anyone, no matter how sharp a criticism it is, they can say it because it's wrapped in humor. So they can send the message, but it doesn't sting as much. So the player gets the message about not running out the ball or, you know, maybe he's slacking off or or looking at his phone when he shouldn't Mm -hmm. be looking at his phone in the clubhouse. So he sends the message, but he's the player doesn't feel humiliated or that he's no longer a part of the team. Yeah. Like you screwed up, you're still a part of part of us. We still love you, but you screwed up and you gotta fix it. And it's done with humor. Done with humor. And also yeah. the jester can also um break the tension, mm-hmm. you know, with one joke or one prank or you know, and one example, and I even hate to bring up his name, but um, in 2010, when the Giants, you know, won their first World Series in San Francisco, uh, shockingly, uh, a player named Aubrey Huff, who was so disliked, you know, by all his teammates, almost everywhere else he's been, shows up at the Giants, and I, I won't go into the whole story, but he ended up being a team leader and partly because he was a jester mm-hmm. and it, but it was clubhouse funny. 
It wasn't like right. the rest of the world funny. Yeah. There's Clubhouse funny and then the rest of the world yeah. funny. And probably you know, wasn't printable also. Well, no, mm-hmm. he, he walked through the Clubhouse yeah. when they were under stress about something. And he was one of the few players that, you know, still thought he was, you know, playing in the 80s. You know, he'd walk through the, even when the media was there, he'd walk through naked. You know, it's like, nobody does that anymore. Yeah. And so he walked through and um, was looking for his toothbrush. I probably shouldn't tell this story on the Commonwealth Club. This is, <laughs> this is more for like a book But he, he walked through the clubhouse and he's asking his teammates, say, hey, anybody see my toothbrush? I can't find my toothbrush. Then he turned around and guess where it was? Yeah. 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 We can uh, all guess. Yeah. yeah. Protruding. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting that that is perceived as funny. And it, it oh. actually works. It's an interesting chemistry question in and of itself. It is. It's like yeah. so stupid yeah. that it works. They can't help but laugh mm. right. at that. And it did break the tension. It, it yeah. worked. Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, point about humor generally is often it's so stupid. I mean, like <laughs> you think of some of Gene Wilder's movies and so forth. And a lot of the stuff is so stupid that you just have to laugh. You I'm do. laughing just thinking about it. You know? Exactly. But that is part exactly. of that chemistry of a clubhouse oh, or t- of a workplace. You it know? totally is. And Roy, you and I have talked over the years about the teasing, yeah. right? I mean, teasing mostly more in the male, you know, locker rooms than than female locker rooms, but it definitely happens in the female locker rooms too, is that the teasing says you're one of us because Mm. if I can tease you and you take it, now I know there's a trust, you know, my intention. Right. And so you can laugh about it and give it back to me. And those kinds of interactions totally are bonding. Because it says, I trust you. Yeah. I trust you enough to say this and you're going to take it the right way. And, and, then, I, and I am never going to say anything nice to you. So don't. Never going to say anything yeah, nice to you. Don't no. even get an idea there. I might someday. Because the teasing is the nice. The teasing is the way you're. It's the way you show love. It's the way you right. show trust. And it develops, which is also you see on every great team chemistry team are the inside jokes, the inside mm-hmm. phrases that only they yeah. know, only they understand. Yeah. And that pulls a team, that makes it feel like it's just us. Well, a good, yeah, well, you used just us. That was what the Warriors used, wasn't it? Exactly, exactly. What? When they Talk would break that. a when they would break a huddle. Like I saw, I was looking at, you know, uh, Rick Welts, the president of the Warriors. He had a ring and, and um, I said, oh, God, can I look at, you know, it's so fun to look at the championship rings. And at the very bottom of the ring, it had these two words, just us. Mm. And I didn't get a chance to ask him what that meant. And, you know, I, I then ultimately found out that that became their little, you know, code. And they had it in their in their lock in the locker room and in two different places. Uh, Kevin Durant had it tattooed on his legs, just on one leg and us on the other leg. Like that's mm. how important it was. Yeah. And so I talk about how great team chemistry teams, you know you're a great team chemistry team when you become a just us team. Yeah. And that means it's just about the players, like the coaches, the managers, everybody is an outsider. 
accept the players. And when you get that, then you do get that sort of military platoon group where it's all about us yeah. we're, we're, because we can only rely on each other. Nobody else is out on that field with us. Mm -hmm. We have to do it. And we're committed, you know, and that's when the purpose stops being the World Series or what, the purpose becomes each other. Yeah. That you start playing for each other and nothing else. And that's when you can soar. Well, let's broaden the, this. Uh, uh, I don't want to make it sound as though this is just a gender-specific thing to uh, baseball players in the Bay Area. Um, you, fascinating part of your book deals with the 1996 women's Olympic basketball team. Tell us that story in, in a nutshell, obviously. Yeah. Well, in a nutshell, the, the so it was going for the 96 Olympics, which was going to be in Atlanta. So in previous, recent, previous uh, prior years to that, the women's inter, you know, um, international competition, the Americans did not do well. And you know, it was like two, three years on the international stage. So now they go into the Olympics or they're heading to the Olympics. It's a year before the Olympics. So they pick the team, Tara Vanderveer, the Stanford women's basketball coach, mm -hmm. takes a year's leave from her Stanford team, which you know they had won you know, national championships, one of the most elite women's basketball teams in the country. She takes a leave of a year. Every player on that team who mostly had turned pro, Rebecca Lobo was the only one that had just come out of college. They all took a year out of their lives to prepare for the Olympics. And so they were traveling to Siberia to play. They were, I mean, it was a brutal year. And Tara Vandeveer was the taskmaster's taskmaster. Yeah. Because she had coached a couple of those teams that had lost on the international stage. And she was disgusted with the way they had played. They were lackadaisical. They're just, you know, they were playing mm -hmm. the European version of you, you just get the ball run down the court and just throw yeah. it. There wasn't a lot of strategy. And, you know, sure enough, by the time they got to the Olympics and they got to the final, you know, the, the championship game in Atlanta and they're facing Brazil, which was the team that had beaten them several times on the international stage. They played out of their minds. They were so prepared. They were so together as a team. And part of the reason they were together was, you know, they were banding, not against mm -hmm. Tara, but she had put them, she was so brilliant. She was yeah. so brilliant. She put them through such hardship because, you know, hardship bands people together. Mm -hmm. Military is based on it, right? Right. And they just went ahead 10 points, 19 points. I think they ended up winning by 29 points. And through that year, because they played college teams, they played other countries, you know, practiced it. They were 60 and 0. Wow. And it was yeah. the best women's basketball team yeah. the world has ever seen. And, and so they had just, they had those archetypes that you developed. They you know, did. They had every archetype. You remind me in talking about their playing style that where they were all individually great athletes, but they couldn't win as a team. Your story about Steve Kerr and passing the basketball to each other, right? That makes right. the point so well. Right. Tell us right. about Steve. Well, when Steve Kerr took over, um, he arrived at the Warriors. 
And um, so he comes on and he has his analytics guy you know, he, so Steve War, Steve Warrior, Steve Kerr wanted <laughs> to have kind of a Greg Popovich team. And Steve Kerr had, had played, you know, with Popovich, yeah. um, played with Phil Jackson, and they are very much team oriented. Mm-hmm. You know, he wanted a team that passed around a lot. So anyway, long story short, the analytics guy um, found that when the Warriors passed the ball to each other, you know, that they had more, you know, at least five passes per possession. Mm. They, you know, their scoring was was way up here. With The uh, story about Steve Kerr that Joan was telling is really, it's quite important because we, we're working these days with the concept that sports is basically susceptible to analytics and that we can, you know, if we figure out who can shoot the best three pointers or who can pass them best or who can hit the three run home run most frequently then the analytics are going to tell that to an advance and so we just put teams together like a, a lego set or something like that but the, i think the warriors uh, and the story joan was telling was a really classic example of a it's much more complicated situation than that because what the passing did was not simply wear down the defense a little bit, get them a little more tired and maybe get somebody open, but it made everybody feel like they were part of the game. So there was a, a, a chemistry, to use Joan's term, that developed between all the players where they went out and they actually figured out that if they passed five times, they were going to get an open shot and they were going to win. And their their scoring percentage was just obvious if you looked at the statistics that they scored the best after passing. And of course, <clears throat> as we know, that's not a a common behavior sometimes in the in the pro basketball game. So Steve Kerr bringing that element to the game was a, a really critical part of their team success. And if you go back and you watch the last dance, the story about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, you see Steve Kerr as a really important uh, part of that uh, team. And you want to talk about a team that had chemistry. They didn't all get along and they didn't like each other very much in many cases. Um, and there was tension with the front office and all the things that are demonstrated in that really interesting uh, video uh, called The Last Dance. I recommend it if people haven't seen it. But you see how Steve Kerr learned a lot about how teams win by by playing on a, a team like that. The uh, Another question we have from the... Uh, uh, our audience while we're waiting for Joan to come back is uh, teams in the Bay Area that have team chemistry. And I think it's it's very interesting question. And we certainly saw that materialize with the uh, 49ers over the last several years. We saw the years with uh, the 49ers that were so lean where they had trouble uh, winning uh, 10 games a year and then something clicked it was an addition of a couple of the archetypes like Joan is talking about the rookies who had so much enthusiasm the veterans the the quarterback who could um, make all the wide receivers felt like they were part of the team and suddenly we had a team uh, in the Super Bowl 
And uh, I think the Warriors are a classic example of that. An interesting example of team chemistry working the other way around was in 2014 with the uh, Oakland A's at the at the break, uh, the All-Star game that year. The A's had the best record in baseball. And their warrior, in terms of uh, the players on that team, was uh, Cespedes. He was... Uh, Big, strong, powerful, could throw the ball on a line from left field directly to home plate. Okay, and, can you hear uh, me? Welcome back. Yeah, I was just um, uh, telling the story about uh, getting into the story about Cespedes as an example of how team chemistry can go the other way. And you notice when it's gone. And I was just starting it with the sentence that, the Warriors had the best record in baseball at the break. And then what happened? And so tell us that story. Well, they had, you know, this great team chemistry and a lot of young guys and, um, you know, just eager and, and talented and energetic. And then, you know, trying to get into the playoffs. And it wasn't a, you know, a, a dumb move at all. I mean, it kind of was, you need pitching. So they traded for um, John Lester to be their pitcher and traded Cespedes. And now Cespedes was that team's warrior. Right. You know, he was the guy that everybody looked toward. And it's like, okay, we got confidence because he's there and, and, you know, good guy. So Lester, Lester comes and um, Cespedes is gone. And it was, it it was such a surprise to the rest of the team that he was gone. And then who was the other player that was also? Well, um, Johnny Gomes came with him. Johnny uh, Gomes came with him, but who? Yeah. there was somebody else on that team, a young guy who oh. was like killing it. <clears throat> and the A's sent him down. And right. everybody was looking around like, wait a minute. He's doing the best he can and he gets set down. So yeah. there was a real breach of trust there. Mm-hmm. It's like we have something mm-hmm. really going. So anyway, they just went in the tank. For the rest of that season. Yeah. I looked and, it up. They were 22 and 33 for the rest of the year. And they had their best record in baseball before then. Exactly. I mean, it's one of the, you know, the, the, the great tanks of, of, of all time. And, um, and Johnny Gomes, who, you know, we haven't talked about, but in my book, and he's this journeyman player for people who don't right. know him and 242 lifetime hitter, but it seemed like every team he went to, they won. And so he was my example. There's a whole chapter about him in the book about being a super carrier of chemistry. And, um, and he comes on and he had been with the A's a few years earlier and he was the guy. I mean, he lifted everybody. They had great team chemistry, played really well. And he couldn't do anything with those guys. He walked into that clubhouse and he's like, oh my God, I'm coming yeah. on to this great team. It's going to be right. exciting. He did everything he could. He could not move the needle on that right, team. Right, right. It was like a a rock fell in the into the middle of the swimming pool. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, it was a. But it, it when just before you came back on, I was saying it's a good example of you know we tend to say well team chemistry we can tell it by the fact that the team performs better, right? There's a more effective team. Well, you can also see. When the other way around, when it's subtracted in that the Cespedes trade is a good example and exactly. everything collapses. Everything, um, yeah. We have a, a 
some interesting audience questions, and I want to interleave right. them in as well. Um, one other thing I talked about while you were off was uh, how uh, the uh, Steve Kerr learned a lot about team chemistry by playing on the Warriors. I mean, on the uh, Bulls with uh, Jordan and Scottie Pippen and all of those. Mm -hmm. And so one of the um, questions was people asked for you to comment on that Bulls uh, team and, and how you would analyze their team chemistry. You know what? I didn't watch that Bulls team very much, but I did watch the 10 part series about Michael Jordan. And so you do get yeah. a lot from that. And I did find it fascinating. I mean, one is that we all know Phil Jackson is just a brilliant right. coach. Uh, and one of the things he did, and, and I've seen this in, you know, all the great team chemistry teams is that, and it kind of goes back to just us, but you, ex and Phil Jackson set this tone. You accept the people for who they are. And it even goes a step farther than that. So he had the cast of characters as we you know, Dennis Rodman and, and Jordan and Pippen and all these relationships and egos and, and the rest of it. And to try to get them to work. And, you, and Phil Jackson understood completely and Steve Kerr and others that you have to accept who they are and get right. the best out of what they do have to give you. Yeah. And it goes, what, you know, what, what I discovered is that it even goes farther than that, that not everybody's going to like each other. Not everybody mm -hmm. like Dennis Rodman, not everybody like Michael Jordan, but you accept them for who they are to you. So they may be not, not anybody you would like outside of that, but who he, who that person is to the team is what you see and what you accept and totally embrace. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's a very nuanced thing to do, actually. Yes. That you're not judging them morally. You're not judging them for what they've done, you know, outside or they're cheating on their way, you know, whatever it is. But who is that person to us as a team? One of the, uh, the what you remind me of is that one of the most envious things I experienced when I read your book was your opportunity to talk to Stanley McChrystal. And the parallels between what we're talking about in sports and the military are really striking. Talk about that a bit. Striking. I mean, you know, in all the research I was doing, I come across, you know, one research paper after another on the military. And nobody understands the power of bonding to raise performance than the military. Because they yeah. studied it, they live it. Right. When we look at um, uh, basic training, boot camp, I mean, boot camp is more about bonding than it is about developing technical skills. And Stanley McChrystal talks about, um, he wants, you know, in the many jobs he had as, uh, as he moved up the ranks, was overseeing SEAL teams. So, you know, black ops. So in SEAL teams underwater training, every, um, every, they're not soldiers, are they? Are they in the army, SEAL teams? The Navy. No, they're in the Navy, yeah. So, you know, every guy had a swim buddy. And they had to stay together during the whole time they're together, many, many weeks. They had to stay together at all times. Like, they had to go into the dining room together. Mm. If, you know, they had to go to the docks together. They had to go to the pools together. Mm. And if you were caught without your swim buddy, somebody else in your... Oh. uh company yeah 
would be randomly punished mm-hmm. for you. That's, that's, that's how the, important yeah. it was. And that the third party getting punished really makes it more mm-hmm. effective. Yeah, it really does. And yeah. and McChrystal says, without that bonding, the SEAL teams are just a bunch of fit. Hmm. Uh, you know, fit. They don't call them soldiers. What do they call them? Bunch well, of fit. You know, military people. Yeah, he had a word for it. But he said they're not SEAL team if they're not bonded. And we know out in battle, right? You talk right. to any soldier who has been in battle and they will tell you they're not fighting at that. They maybe have enlisted for God and country yeah. and flag, but they're not fighting on the battlefield. They're not thinking about God and country. They're thinking yeah. about the guy next to them. Yeah. And it, that love and uh, General McChrystal and I talked about that. I said, is that a form of love? And he said, mm-hmm. of course, love is at the heart of it. And he yeah. said, there is nothing, it has to be so strong, that bond you have with that guy next to you, to make you continue moving forward into battle when you're under almost unbearable stress and perform at a very, very high level. That is a really profound bond that mm-hmm. they have and that's what happens in sports. You know, there's a version of that anyway yeah. that happens in sports on a good team chemistry. Right. Team. And it brings that love, use of the term love sounds mm-hmm. uh, out of place. But when you come back to your oxytocin, it, it isn't out of place at all. No, not at all. Um, there's some events going on in our society right now, which I think are interesting to um, – discuss and apply some of the research you did too. Let's talk um, first about the protests that we're seeing um, with uh, responding to the uh, horrific uh, uh, criminal injustice uh, events that have happened in the past three or four weeks. Of course, there's a long history to them. But as, as I had read your book and I'm sitting watching these protesters on television, I'm actually thinking, you know, that's some, a lot, I seem a lot of what Joan's talking about there. They were acting in a, for a larger cause and they were, there was an interconnection between them. They're supportive of each other. Did you, did you sense the same thing when you watched that activity? I did. I mean, and, um, and I agree. And, you know, I'm also looking at it from a sports perspective and how the Black Lives Matter movement is pulling teams together. They're not even on the field together. They can't even see each other, right? You know, except the way right. we are. Right. And how it's pulling them together. And I came across that viral video. I don't know if, if uh, how many people have seen that with Kristen Williams. She's a junior at University of Connecticut. And it, I mean, it's, it's really powerful. And when she was asked about it later, and I even wrote it down because I just, I, I, I think it really captures a lot. Um, she said that her white teammates, you know, really didn't understand her life. You know, it, it wouldn't come up. These are very difficult conversations to have. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a bit of a minefield on both sides. And, mm-hmm. and she said that they all, they all, you know, got on Zoom and they really talked to each other and listened to each other really for the first time. And she said that there was a deeper level of trust 
And she said, this will build our team camaraderie and team chemistry just from this alone, these these very open conversations. Mm -hmm. He said, I know if a teammate has my back in real life, she'll have my back on the court. And it is that, and and in Major League Baseball, all those, the African-American players coming together to do that Mm -hmm. video that was just released yesterday. Yeah, yeah. And I talked to one of those players today, Jalen Davis, who's at, who's on the Giants. Mm -hmm. And he told me some stories that he's never, he had never verbalized before Mm -hmm. that he had told to some of his friends that were, you know, they were all on this huge, you know, Zoom call, talking to each other and calling each other separately. And all of these things from his, you know, and it wasn't too dramatic, but these experiences that he had at, he has no other black teammates mm. on the Giants. So who is he going to tell if he needed to, if he felt mm-hmm. the need to tell? Yeah. Do his teammates really understand his experience? Yeah, who would be his sage? Who right? would be his sage? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And it was interesting. So we're actually going to write a blog together about it um, to just say this, you know, I know it doesn't look because he's so quiet. You know, and and so out on the field, all we know them as, right, are baseball Mm -hmm. players. They're wearing a uniform. They're giant, you know, they're they're. This is their wins above replacement value. Yeah. Right. And then you say, wow, this is your day-to-day experience that, you know, being a white person, you know, as like woke as Mm -hmm. we want to be, you know, you can't be. No. There's no way. And so to just, you know, really listen to what these experiences are is really, you know, really profound and, um, and certainly humbling. Listen is such a key word in that because uh, I think that's one of the things that's being changed by the uh, sincerity and the, the unanimity of these, of these protests is we are all listening, not all, but more than before are listening. In fact, one of the um, things I've noticed, uh, it, you know, in times like this, you kind of look around our country and say, okay, who are the people who are articulating the issues for us? Who are our sages? Who are the people who are, are helping us understand what's going on? And um, I have to say there's a relative uh, vacuum, I think, um, coming out of, of what we'll call traditional leadership. But I think it's amazing that the leadership that's coming out of professional and college athletes. Have you noticed that? Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, and and we've, uh, I think we've talked about this before, Joy, uh, Roy, is that this younger generation is so impressive. Mm -hmm. They have so much clarity about their principles than most of us had at that age. And, you know, and that, that's intersecting with the moment, right? Right. I mean, they're creating the moment, but there is a moment in which, um, and, and, you know, a lot of the black athletes and, and coaches who I've talked to over the last couple of weeks, they're so, especially like, you know, guys like Dusty Baker, who were part of the 1960s, right? Yeah. And he said, the difference is, and it like brought tears to his eyes, the difference is all the white people 
that are marching side by side with us. Yeah. And that didn't happen then. And that gives, he said, I have so much hope because of this generation, you mm -hmm. know, and a lot of the people that are marching, you know, white and, and black alike are, you know, yeah. young. They're young and they're just like, this has to happen. We, you know, there's no more patience. There's no more waiting for this. Because the easy stereotype is the shut up and dribble response, right? When totally. somebody other than a, a, any, somebody you agree with who has an elective office starts to express their opinion, you say, oh, you're just a movie actress or you're just a base basketball player. Just shut up and, and dribble. But now... They are they are the voice. I mean, I I'm really impressed with the NFL players, for example, how they're totally. really getting together. LeBron James is working oh. on voter turnout. Mm -hmm. um, I Steph mean, I Curry, Steph Curry, Steph is Curry. Out front. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, it, it it's it's so impressive. It's just so impressive, and it is you know that's what we love about movement. A movement is a lot of people coming together you know, of, of a uh, similar mind and driven by an urgency that this, ha this has to happen. And it's, it's, it's a horrible reason what's driving right. it. And we've seen it before and then it's dissolved. Right. And very little changes. But I think this will change. You know what? It, it, it's not the same thing, obviously, but you know, when all the gymnasts, you know, because I wrote the book about the gymnasts and figure skaters, right. when all those gymnasts came out after Larry Nasser, um, the the abuse, the, the sexual molestation, abuse, yeah, yeah, the sexual abuse, yeah. and you're thinking, oh my god, you know, this sport hasn't changed; it's the same old thing. But then you watch that courtroom, and thank goodness it was on CNN, and a small group of women and young women showed up for the sentencing. And because it was carried on CNN, all of a sudden gymnasts were flying in from all over the country because they wanted their say too. And mm. by the end of it, I think there was 160 or 170 women who gave testimony right. for his sentencing. And then I said, now it's going to change because they're going to make sure it changes. Yes, and the, the sanctions against some of the people at the university administration level helped with that as well. You know, the whole concept of change is an interesting one. We we tend to think change is kind of like when we um, are painting a wall and we paint it and gradually it changes from one color to another, but it's a <laughs> relatively constant pace. But if we think of back, back to our own lifetimes, the change has happened in what biologists tend to call punctuated rate or punctuated mm. equilibrium where it goes along for a while and nothing happens. It seems like we're never going to solve this problem. Then all of a sudden something happens as I think we're going through right now that precipitates this buildup like a mm -hmm. dam bursts. Mm -hmm. And I think Dusty Baker's observations about the fact that if you look at who is in those crowds, it's not just African-Americans uh, mm -hmm. who are protesting. It's it's all of us. It, we're all Americans. Yeah. It's right? Americans, we're American right. citizens. And this is, yeah. you know, such a blight on American history. It's, it's a blight on American present, all of it. And as citizens, you know, yeah, gosh, yeah. give us, you know, it's an opportunity so, to stand up and make change. 
but tying this back to your book, it's almost like chemistry at a distance, you know, that yeah. we don't have to be in the clubhouse. We, right. With our world, the virtual world now, we, I can be watching the demonstration in D.C. Yeah. or the demonstration in Austin, mm-hmm. Texas or whatever. And I'm getting that same rush mm. of oxytocin uh, from that visualization of people expressing themselves. Right. And so then what, participating how we can, right? Yeah. You know, so who am I going to donate to? Right. You know, what phone calls am I going to make? How am mm. I going to get, you know, so-and-so out of office? Right. So that better policies can go in. What are we going to do about the police department? But, you know, police reform. There's so many ways that we can contribute, you know, because we're yeah. the old folks. We don't want to be in those right. protests. You know, yeah. we're going to come down with yeah. some sickness. COVID, but okay. uh, yeah. Right. So how can we march? Population. Yeah. yeah. How can we yeah. march without marching? Yeah. And that's where I think your theories, um, you know, quantum physics has some theories about how um, you know, the uh, mechanics of object elements acting at a distance. And I think it's the same with team chemistry. Yeah, we can we can pick a lot of this up um, by the great things, I think, my opinion, that are, are going on right now. Well, Joan, um, I would love to keep going. I wish uh, that we could uh, just open up a glass of... <laughs> wine and keep moving but i'd I'd like to ask you kind of tie this together because you started with the question whether is there team chemistry right and you went through a lot of research and at the end of your book you kind of summarize your analysis of all that so maybe that would be a good way to tie everything together Uh. You're testing me here. That's a, that's a big that's a big question, uh, Roy. Uh, you can um, bring it. Yeah. Well, it's um, you know I ended up with a uh, a definition that team chemistry is a physiological, um, psychological, and sociological uh, uh, construct that whose only function is to elevate performance. Mm-hmm. So if the if the if the productivity doesn't go up, you don't have team chemistry, you know, and people will say, well, you know, well, what about teams that um, have great team chemistry, but don't win? Mm-hmm. Well, number one, they may not have any talent. <laughs> yeah. Team chemistry can't manufacture no. talent. Team chemistry yeah. amplifies talent. Right. Right. And then just one other question I just, I want to address because it always comes up you know, is what about those 1970s A's and Yankees teams, oh, sure. that, yeah. you know, the 25 players, 25 Cavs teams, right. you know, they, you know, they arrive in the clubhouse and, you know, before they could even change clothes, there's a fist fight, right? You know, why did they win? You know, people right. say, well, they didn't need team chemistry to win. Yeah. And what I've discovered, you know, after all this time is that they had no team chemistry in the clubhouse they had incredible chemistry on the field mm-hmm. and they have what I call task chemistry because mm-hmm. team chemistry isn't always what we think it is. Cause it's yeah. not camaraderie, right. you know, it's, yeah. it, 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 you know, it's not cohesion, you know, it, it's a lot of different things, but, um, but you can have task chemistry and like, that's what Barry Bonds had with his mm-hmm. giants with, teams with Jeff Kent, particularly. with Jeff Kent, you know, yeah. you would think that, that, you know, clubhouse would just explode, you know, with the animosity between the two of them. But on the field, and there's a whole chapter about that, on the field, they trusted, it's always about trust, right? 
They right. trusted each other completely. Mm -hmm. And when I interviewed both of them, Barry Bond said, there's no one else I want at second base than Jeff Kent. And Jeff wow. Kent, there is no one else I want in left field but yeah. Barry Bonds. And we all know, you know, they got into a fist fight in the dugout. Right. You know, they haven't said two words to each other, you know, since they parted ways. But, um, you know, and just like those 70s Yankees and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, uh, ace teams. Yeah. They had incredible task chemistry. They were so committed to winning, so competitive. And they loved that those other guys were on the field with them. Yeah. Because they had the same mindset, yeah. even though they didn't like each other. Just win, um, baby. Yeah. Just, just win, baby. Yeah. Well, Joan, um, I'm going to recommend to everybody that they read your book. And they can also get a, a signed um, a book plate from you. So maybe yeah. you want to tell our listeners yeah. before we sign off? Right. So do if, that? Sure. So because we can't go to bookstores and, and sign books, um, if you if you have a book, um, you can send me your address or you're going to send the address to the Commonwealth Club, which there will be right. information on the follow-up email you all will get. Right. And I will, and then write down, who do you want me to sign the book to? And I will write that. And then I will just send it in old fashioned mail to you. So you can put it inside your book as right. if Great. I had signed it. Well, Joan, we can't thank you enough for what oh, you've added to us. And this was really a lot of fun. So always. have a good evening and thank you everybody out there for virtually joining us. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, and, thanks everyone. Yeah. Good night. Yeah. Good night. Yeah. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.